G'day guys, welcome back. Good to hear that you stayed on after all the words I threw at you last week. Like I said last week, and I'll say it again, you don't need to know most of those things. I just wanted to go through it all with you for people out there who want to go out and do this on their own or for people who just like to understand the whole picture, like myself. But again, you won't need to know it all, so don't stress if you miss some of it. So this week, we are going to learn the next important thing before we can start valuing a company properly, and that is what's called free cash flow. So in essence, free cash flow is the most accurate and real version of what we throw around as the word profit. Okay, Profit can mean lots of different things. It can be operating profit. It could be net income. There's so many different ways for people to portray what profit is, but the truest form of profit is free cash flow. And the reason for this is that free cash flow is how much a company makes after every conceivable expense has been taken out. And that spare cash that the company generates is what's going to end up in us shareholders' pockets. So just to make more sense of that, um, I've had a few questions about this actually uh, where someone asked me, well, why doesn't the company, why would the company give me their money? Why would the company give me its money? And I thought it was a really interesting thing that I hadn't really touched on yet. When a company becomes a public company, no single person owns it. There's no higher being or even the founder of the company, while they may own a bunch of shares in the company, they no longer own the company completely themselves. So who owns these public companies? It's the shareholders. It's us. So when we buy a company or a stock in a company, we're buying a piece of that company. And what we want is we want to buy a piece of a company that's going to make free cash flow that's going to end up in our pockets eventually. And there's a few ways it ends up in our pockets and we'll learn about that in the second half of this episode. So free cash flow, it's the most important metric of all. It's so important that the current established theory for what the value of any asset is, a piece of real estate, a car, whatever, the value of an asset, including a company or a stock, the value of those things is the sum. So adding together all the free cash flow or all the cash it makes out into the future forever. So if you add all those things up and if you could perfectly predict the cash a company is going to make forever and add all those up, that's what a company's worth. That's its true inherent value. Okay, so obviously free cash flow is super crucial and I'll rant about why I think it's even more crucial than most people admit later on. So let's just start with looking at free cash flow. So it's got four components. The formula, it's just four things, nothing complicated. It's just adding and subtracting four different things. So the first thing is called NOPAT, which stands for Net Operating Profit After Tax. Then we add depreciation and amortization. Then we subtract capital expenditures or purchase of property, plant and equipment. And then we subtract the change in working capital. Four things. So before you come overwhelmed, we're just going to go through each one one by one and it's really that simple. So the first one was NOPAT which is net operating profit after tax. So if we remember from last week on the income statement, at the top we have the sales, which is all the money we collected from our customers. 
Then we subtract out the costs of goods sold, which is all the direct costs associated with making the product or service that we're selling. And then we subtract all the indirect costs, which are all the costs associated with running our business, which aren't the direct costs of making the product or service. So if we go back to imagine running a sushi restaurant, the cost of the rice and the raw materials and the tuna to make our sushi rolls is going to be a cost of goods sold. It's a direct cost of making the sushi rolls. But then we have all our operating expenses, which are the rent for the restaurant, all the bills that the restaurant has, electricity, water, the salary and the wages of the chefs, and so on. And after we deduct all those out, we're left with the operating income, which is the income from the normal year-to-year operations of the business. Okay? So what is NOPAT? Well, we can in the name, it's got net operating profit and then after tax. So all we're doing in NOPAT is it's just that operating income and then we deduct the taxes out. That's it. That's NOPAT. And the way we deduct taxes out mathematically is we, instead of, you know, finding the taxes on the income statement and blah, 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 all we do is, is we grab the operating income and then we multiply it by one minus the tax rate. And that's just a quick way of deducting the tax rate, deducting the taxes from our operating income to end up at the net operating profit after tax, no PAT. That's the first thing in the free cash flow formula. The next thing is what's called depreciation and amortization. So depreciation, we'd all have a pretty grey understanding of that from year eight maths, but depreciation is just the fact that when you buy something brand new, after every year after you buy it, it slowly declines in value. It loses value. So as soon as you buy a car, as soon as you put the ignition in your brand new car, you've probably just lost about five to ten grand or however whatever percentage of the car it is. So that's depreciation. We buy physical assets, we buy physical things, and over time they slowly lose value. That's depreciation. So for a company, when they buy factories and buildings and machinery and equipment, after they buy those things probably brand new, they will slowly decline in value over time. Amortization is the same concept as depreciation, except it's for non-physical assets, which are called intangible assets. So non-physical assets are things like software. If you're a Google, you're not out there buying much machinery to run you know, the Google search engine, but you're probably spending lots of money on all the software that you need to run the website. So that's amortization. It's the same as depreciation, except it's when you buy non-physical assets like software, brands, trademarks, contracts, whatever, whatever non-physical thing you pay for, it will decline in value over time. It will depreciate, but we give it a different name because it applies to non-physical assets. So that's depreciation and amortization. Now, the reason we add it back is because instead of, it would be really difficult if you're a multi-billion dollar company with, you know, hundreds of factories all over the world, 
it would be really hard to get someone to go out every single year and value every single piece of equipment and factory and car and truck that you own own, and find out how much they've decreased in value over that past year. So what accounting rules do instead is they just have set groups. So they'll have cut like motor vehicles, they'll have office equipment, they'll have land, they'll have buildings, they'll have equipment, they'll have all those categories and then they'll have set rates of depreciation. So they'll have a set percentage at which they just decrease the value of those things each year to save them the hassle of going out and doing it manually. So it's just a rough estimate using an accounting rule. And the reason we add it back is we're trying to find the free cash flow. We want, we're trying to find the true cash movement, okay? The company hasn't actually lost money. It hasn't lost money because its truck is worth $10,000 less than it was last year. But how it comes up is that they are once one year closer to having to buy a new truck and replace it. So they haven't used any physical cash. They haven't lost any cash in depreciation and amortization. But accounting rules are suggesting that because it's lost that much in value, you're going to have to replace it soon. So the reason we add depreciation and amortization back is because we want to essentially exclude it because depreciation amortization is included in the operating income. So US companies on the income statement won't actually have a separate line for depreciation and amortization, but it's already in there. It's baked in amongst the operating expenses and the cost of goods sold. Australian companies, they're a little nicer. They'll actually have the depreciation and amortization charge or expense on their income statement separately. So the reason we add it back is we want to get rid of this thing altogether. It's been taken out. It's been taken out of our operating income by accountants and we want to add it back because we want the cash. We don't want the accounting estimates of things. We want to find the true movement of cash. So we add it back. So that's depreciation and amortization. The next thing is CapEx or capital expenditures or also called the purchase of property, plant and equipment. It's got three names. Took me like three months to realize that they're all the same thing, okay? So what these are, if we remember, is where in contrast to our operating expenses, which are things we have to pay every single year, we have to pay our chefs, we have to pay our rent, we have to pay our advertising, and those expenses pretty much occur year after year. Capital expenditures or capital expenses are things that we buy that are going to last us more than one year. So if we buy a factory or a car or a truck, that's going to last us more than a year, hopefully. (laughs) It's going to last us more than a year. So it comes under capital expenditures. Now, the reason we subtract that away is because the company is physically paying for this new equipment. Whereas depreciation and amortization was a theoretical loss of value, the capital expenditures, the company has actually forked out. They've gone, okay, we need a new truck. Let's buy a new truck. Yep, we need a new piece of equipment. Let's buy a new piece of equipment. And so depreciation and amortization and CapEx are like brother and sister. Depreciation and amortization is the accountant's rough estimate and the capital expenditures is the actual cash paid by the company to renew their old equipment or buy new equipment, whatever. So that's why 
when I said last week, the income statement uses a bunch of accounting rules, whereas the cash flow statement uses true cash. That is a, that's probably the biggest example of an accounting rule versus actual cash movement. Okay. And then the last thing we do is we subtract what's called the change in working capital. So working capital, it's a little bit complicated, but essentially it's the money you need for your business to run next year. So if you're a clothing company, you need money to buy the raw materials to make next season's clothing, okay? And that money is called the working capital, okay? And we subtract that out because it's an expense. You need to pay it so that you can sell stuff next year. It's important. So that's it. That's free cash flow. If any of that freaked you out, don't worry. My spreadsheets, which are now up on my website for each company, already have calculated free cash flow for you and have show, and have already got the numbers all put in there for you. This is just so you understand what the hell's going on. So why is free cash flow so important? Like I said, it is the truest form of what we call profit. Okay, if anyone says profits, you want to know the free cash flow of it. And the reason is, is because like I said earlier, when we buy a sh- when we buy stock, don't think of them as numbers that zip zip up and down like a trader what we are buying is we're buying a part of a business and we're buying a part of a business so we can get a bit of its free cash flow because that free cash flow is ours depending on how many shares you have you are entitled to a slice of that free cash flow so the more free cash flow the company has the more you'll get win-win now how does this free cash flow end up benefiting you there's three main ways free cash flow ends up in your pocket. The first is through what are called dividends. So dividends are essentially where a company has a bunch of free cash flow. It has nothing to do with it. It it doesn't need all this excess cash that it's made. So it will go, all right, let's give half of it to our shareholders. And so it will, they'll set aside an amount of money that they're willing to give away to shareholders or not give away what they're willing to give to the shareholders who are entitled to it because it's your company, right? So they set aside how much money they don't need, they divide it by the number of shares, and then they give you what's called a dividend per share, okay? And depending on how many shares you have, that'll determine how many dividend, how much dividends you get. So that is a very direct way that you can benefit, And there's so many people out there who are like dividend investors and they want that income regularly. But what I'm going to show you here is that dividends are probably the least effective way for you to receive benefits in terms of financial gain as a shareholder in a company. So dividends, company just pays it to you. The company has to pay tax on that. And in Australia, we're lucky. We have what's called... um, we have a double taxation law, which means that the company pays taxes on their profits. And when you receive dividends, you don't have to pay tax again, right? Even though it's income for you, it's tax-free. And that's called the franking laws. And you might've heard about it in the, um, last, um, the last state election, federal election, sorry, franking credits. So yeah, however, in the US, okay, in the US, a company makes profit, they pay taxes on that profit. And then when they give out dividends to their shareholders, the government in the US sees that dividend payment that you receive as a shareholder as an income, and then you have to pay tax on it. So 
When, a comp- when you receive money from your company in the form of dividends, you've been taxed twice, okay? And so it's a pretty inefficient way to receive money from your investment. But that's the first way, dividends. The second way is what are called share buybacks, okay? This is when the company has a bunch of spare cash and they look at their share price and they go, we think our share price is... Under, oh, regardless, what they do is they have all this cash and they will go, let's buy back some of our own shares, okay? And what ends up happening there is it now means that your single share, let's say, is now represents a bigger slice of the company. And so what will happen is the share price will go up. So let's take a theoretical example. Let's say we have a company that's worth $100, and it's got 10 shares, okay? Pretty crappy company, but whatever. It's got 10 shares, and the company goes, oh, we have all this spare money. We're going to buy back five of our own shares. And so if you're a shareholder, if you own one of those shares in this company, at first, you owned one out of the 10 shares in this company, so you owned 10% of the company. But now, the company has gone out and bought half of their shares back, And what happens when they buy those shares back is they essentially disappear. They vanish. And so what you've got now is you still own one share, but there's only five shares in the company. So you own 20% of the company. So your shares now represent, are now worth double what they were before. Okay, so that's how share buybacks can increase your value or can financially benefit you. So just to go through that again, a company has all this spare free cash flow, they buy back their own shares. And so each share that you own now represents a bigger slice of the company. And so naturally, the share price will go up on the stock market. And so you've benefited from capital gains, your stock price has gone up, great. So that's the second way. The third way the free cash flow can reach your pocket as a shareholder is by the company investing in new projects, okay? So if your company has lots of free cash flow, some of them like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Google, these companies make so much money, like tens of billions of dollars of free cash flow every year and they don't pay any dividends and they don't really do much share buybacks. So what they're doing is, is they're getting their free cash flow and they're investing in new projects, And the reason they're doing that is they're getting their free cash flow, they're investing in new projects, those projects will, if successful, they'll grow over time, and that will grow the free cash flow of the company even more. And then they can can get that money and they can invest in new projects again, and the free cash flow will go up even more. And this is the best way, this is the best way for the free cash flow to benefit shareholders, because it's compounding. Okay, every year the company gets all the free cash flow it makes, invests in new projects. Those projects earn a 20% return. Free cash flow increases by 20% that year. Great. Then they do it again next year and the year after and the year after. And every year, the free cash flow of the company is compounding and building. And remember, compounding from our first episode, that's how you get that exponential growth in wealth. And that's how you start out with $1,000 and end up with $100,000. Okay, so that's the best way for free cash flow to end up in your pocket. 
However, not all companies can just invest in new projects. Like if you're a clothing company, you've got your brand, you make your clothes and that's about it. You can't really venture into a whole new line of business, can you? No. So that's free cash flow and that's how it can end up in your pocket as a shareholder. Dividends, share buybacks and investing in new projects. Now, I really love free cash flow. I base all my investment decisions off free cash flow. And I want to highlight to you why. Let's take two types of companies. Company A has been free cash flow positive for 10 years, reliable amount of free cash flow. It hasn't jumped up or down too much. It's been a reliable, steady free cash flow generator. Okay, I know how much free cash flow they've made because I can just look it up on their um, financial statements. I'm pretty well certain that the company has protection from competition. And so it's just going to keep growing those free cash flows each year. It's not going anywhere. It's very predictable and very reliable. Now let's look at company B. Company B is a popular, trendy, new growth stock that is free cash flow negative. Hasn't, it's making huge losses because the management tells me they're investing in growth, they're looking to grow themselves, and you know, they're growing fast, and that's great. So what we have here is, the, how do I know how much free cash flow that company's going to make? I have to rely on the management team. The management team, you know, they founded the company, they go, we think we're going to make this much free cash flow by this year. And because it's a hot new stock, it doesn't really have that much competition. And the founder of the company is really optimistic about the future. He created this or she, they know what they're doing. They're going to send this company upwards. Okay. But the reality is you have no evidence of that. You don't know how much free cash flow they're going to make. And you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So there's two main reasons I really don't like investing in these hot growth stocks that tell me that in some time in the future, they're going to make a bunch of money. The first reason is competition. So we live in a capitalistic world, which means that anyone can start a business. So if you're a company that is making lots and lots of money, is really popular, guess what's going to happen? That's going to draw competition. Look at Netflix and streaming. Netflix, meteoric rise, $200 billion company. Guess who started looking? Apple, Amazon, Disney. The biggest companies in the world all wanted to get into streaming as well. Did management think that that was going to happen back in the day? No way. And then the other thing is management doesn't even... The other part of competition is, for example, with Netflix when they were originally saying we're going to make all this money in 10 years time, they A, didn't expect as much competition as they got and B, they didn't realize that their business model was going to struggle because Netflix relied on licensing TV shows and movies from the, from the studios that make them and paying those studios money to have it on Netflix and then Netflix would charge their subscribers a fee. But what's happened in the last five years? Why has Netflix gone on to make a bunch of originals? Because they've realized that those film and TV 
studios that make the content that Netflix puts on their platform, they're now going to make their own streaming platform. And so they've taken the license to their content back and they've taken it off Netflix. Netflix was kind of early and realized this and that's why they started making originals because they realized that in the future, everyone's going to want to be in streaming and they're going to lose all their content. So that's something that maybe the CEO and founder didn't realize, didn't really think about 10 years ago. And it changes the whole picture. It changes the whole growth. It changes how profitable the company is going to be. It went from being, they were meant to be profitable in 2019, but now because they're spending so much money on content to build that library that they need to compete with the likes of Disney and Fox and Warner Brothers and Universal who have decades of content that people know and love, Netflix is losing more and more money every year and the competition's just heating up. So the reason I don't like investing in young, hot, money-losing growth stocks is that competition can come from anywhere and especially if it's, if it's a successful or a good growth stock that does well, that's just going to bring more competition in. So what I'm trying to say here is there's a lot of uncertainty There's a lot more uncertainty with those growth stocks that are losing money. You don't know what competition's going to be like. You don't know what the future's going to be like. And yet management comes out and says, we're going to make all this money. And they say that 10 years ago and every year those projections get worse and worse and worse until Netflix goes from being profitable in 2019 to spending $16 billion on content. To compete. Okay, so I like free cash flow because I can look at a company that has protection, they've got a 10 year or even five year history of making free cash flow, and it's a reliable free cash flow. The company's got protection, so it's not going to go anywhere. And so I can use those free cash flows to calculate what the company's worth. Whereas with these hot growth companies, Yeah, they've got their projections that you could maybe value the company off of, but you have to factor in all the uncertainties that go with A, time, and B, competition. Okay, so for me, I don't like, I don't really like young growth companies. Some of them have been great, but in general, I just find all the risk associated with investing in those companies, all the risks around the future and competition, for me, they're just too much. I would rather just play it safe, invest in a company that probably isn't growing as much, but I can look at their history and go, they've got reliable, consistent free cash flows. They're profitable. I know exactly how much free cash flow they make, and I don't have to make any estimates or predictions based on you know, the management team or you know, analysts who just study the world and think they can figure it out. So yeah, that's free cash flow. That's why I think it's so important. And another benefit of free cash flow is it's a lot easier to value a company that is free cash flow positive, that is making free cash flow, than it is to value a company that's losing money. Okay, there's examples everywhere. Afterpay, a great Australian success story. We, we've now got Zip Pay, that pink one. There's like Hum. There's so many different ones because the company doesn't have protection and they're not making free cash flow. And 
the people who, the founders of Afterpay probably didn't think about competition when they created their product. But now the stock is at, you know, the company's worth $15 billion and they have no protection from any competitor whatsoever. Another good example is Uber. We've got DD and I don't know, Hungry Panda or whatever. That's just all these young, hot, growth, money-losing companies. They started out with a very idealistic founder, great perspectives of the future, all these projections. And in reality, they get swamped by competition. And once their growth slows down and everyone turns sour on them, the stocks get punished pretty bad. So if you want to invest in a growth company that's losing money, go for it. Just make sure you're very certain that A, the company has protection from competition and B, that they're going to continue to thrive. Okay, I'm not trying to scare you all off them. I just mean there's a lot more risk associated with them. So you have to be a lot more confident and a lot more certain that they're a bet you want to be making. So that's it for this week. That was all about free cash flow, how you calculate it, why it's so important and how it ends up in your pocket. All right. Next week, we're going to start the actual techniques by which we value a company. And we're starting with multiples. So I'll see you then.